Welcome to the Busy Leaders Podcast, a catalyst for inspired action, a lively and engaging podcast hosted by Quint Studer. I'm Nicole Webb Bodie, the Chief Impact Officer for Studer Family of Companies. Quint has a great love for teaching his insight in books and has authored 10 of them in addition to the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Busy Leaders Handbook. He is always on the lookout for ways to share great learning tools. Through his podcast, Quint chats with leaders from all industries and corners of America on how they're tackling the biggest challenges of our time. From this fresh mix of voices emerges a compelling picture of what leadership looks like in today's environment. You'll often walk away with tactical tools, tips, and leadership hacks that you can apply to your own business, community, and life. Joining today's podcast is Liz Jadswick. Quint and Liz have worked together since 1993, and it's always fun to hear them talk about their early days together. It's no surprise they have both turned their attention to helping healthcare workers through the pandemic. Liz talks at length about why those in healthcare are more reluctant to ask for help when they need it and the enormous guilt that some may feel around not being available for their children and for their families. She offers tools and tactics for those that are struggling, as well as tips for leaders on what they can do to make a real difference in the lives of those employees. As a former ER nurse turned national speaker, you can bet Liz's ideas are always super practical, highly impactful, and easy to implement. In May, Liz will be presenting at the Gratitude Symposium, a free month-long online series of presentations from 45 well-known experts meant to thank, teach, and inspire those in healthcare. Her talk is titled Stressed, Who Me? Self-Care for the Selfless. To learn more and to register for free, visit www.thegratitudesymposium.com. Now here's your host, Quint Studer and Liz Jaswick. Well, welcome to the Busy Leader Podcast. This is Quint Studer and my very special guest is Liz Jaswick. Liz and I go back to January of 1993 where I came to Holy Cross Hospital where at the time she was director of the emergency department and it was love at first sight. As Holy Cross results got better, um, I was asked to present at some some hospitals, and I always brought Liz with me because I thought as a nurse, she'd really connect well with the clinical staff there. And I remember the first time hearing her speak, it just was, wow, so much talent. And of course, she's taken that talent, and for many years now, she's helped so many organizations and so many people and written so many great books. And um, when you can know somebody as long as we've known each other, we've gone through so many things together Um so I'm just absolutely thrilled, Liz, and not only to be with you on this podcast, but to be having you be part of the Gratitude Symposium. So welcome. Well, I'm delighted, delighted to be here. And, you know, yeah, yeah it was certainly love at first sight, not, um, but we, we became, we became, it, it developed, it blossomed. Um, I'm very excited to be part of the Gratitude Symposium. And in my session, I say that, you know, it's always my favorite time of the year because it's nurses week and hospital week and I'm always very busy and I missed it last year. I really missed that time. So to be able to send a message out this year was really so exciting for me to connect with um, connect with people in healthcare again. Well, I think Liz, when, uh, when you, we know how much everybody's been impacted, certainly people in general not being able to go out, businesses, owners not being able to open their businesses at times, people not being able to have events. You've seen musicians try to figure out what am I going to do now that I'm not touring. 
Um, so many of my friends in healthcare are speakers, consultants, like like you. And when this mm-hmm. first came about, of course, it was an early shutdown. But you know, we sort of thought, oh, May it would probably open up. You know, it's it's not forever. And then all of a sudden, May comes, and then June comes, and then July comes, and so it's been a huge impact on on people. So as I was talking to people like yourself, the idea was, which I think hits your title, selfless, quite well. Because here, most of the Gratitude Symposium presenters have been financially hit extremely hard in the last year. Yet their first thought is, how can I give? How can I give back to a profession that has given so much to me? Um, so it's pretty pretty amazing. So let's go into your talk. Um, so if I you know, take part of your talk here in May, self-care for the selfless, dressed, who me? What am I going to hear and what am I going to walk away with? What you're going to hear most importantly is that self-care is not a luxury, it's a necessity and that we have to get, you know, it's the put your oxygen mask on first. People in healthcare are great at helping others. They are terrible about asking for help for themselves or asking for what they need. Um, I think there's two reasons why they don't ask for what they need. One, because they're always giving, but two, Because people in healthcare usually are intuitive enough to know what other people need. They expect other people to intuitively know what they need. And it's not always the case. Um, And so I talk about that. I talk about, you know, be as kind and compassionate with yourself as you are with others. And I give some tips on what to do and, and, you know, where stress comes from. Um, But the overall is... um, First of all, stop the self-criticism because I know in my heart, every single person working in healthcare is given way over 100%. So stop the self-criticism and most importantly, stop the guilt. You know, we had a lot of people working in healthcare, single moms who were supposed to be educating their kids at home on a computer and working and working overtime, um, people who didn't celebrate kids' birthdays or didn't see their parents, and they hold on to a lot of guilt. And I remind them towards the end of my talk that kids will forget. They're resilient. But what they won't forget, because they're watching you, is that you know when they're in their 20s, they're going to say, remember that? Uh, pandemic we had in 2020, you know, my dad was working at the hospital. We hardly saw him at all, but he was really making a difference. Or my mom was in the ICU as a nurse and she worked all the time. And I don't know how many lives she saved. We were so proud of her because that is what children are going to remember. They're not going to remember that you missed a game. So I try to encourage them to do that. I try to encourage them without being too Pollyanna-ish, because you know that's not me, Um, find the good, find the glimmers. You know, if you even have to make yourself a list, you know, what's a good day? I've had a good day. I've made someone smile. I've had a good day. If I've helped a coworker, I've had a good day. If I've reduced someone's anxiety, make a list about five or six of those things. And at the end of the day, if you can check even just one box, guess what? You had a good day. So that's kind of the gist um, of the talk. No, I love that. I hadn't thought of that, Liz, that you're, you're right. When kids grow up and they think back, they're, they're going to think sort of like um, our listeners are way too young for this. But I remember going to um, school 
and with kids whose parents had fought in, in World War II, which my dad had fought in World War II. And even though he was out of World War II before I was born, there were some some kids um, who talked about you know their dad's stories about being in World War II, what it was like, and what what heroes their parents were for World War II, or their my grandmother went and worked at a, gen, a factory, a General Motors factory, while people were in World War II. In fact, not only did she go to work there, she stayed there then until she she retired. So, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. They're going to talk about when my dad or my mom did this. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Well, you know what? Another real heroes in healthcare, and certainly the clinical people are heroes. But I have a new book called The Calling and it's coming out in May. And one of the things I talk about, it's just for healthcare, is the fact that, you know, support staff, housekeepers, food service, IT, human resources, finance, facilities, engineering, security, valets, parking lot attendants, all these people could do these jobs in a non-healthcare setting. Yet I bet you none of them signed up for the pan- thinking there'd be a pandemic. Now, if you're a clinician, you sort of know you're going to be possibly in some risky situations, exposed to some things. But I think if you're a non-clinician, I'm not sure if you're prepared for this, but they've been some real heroes. What, what, what can we do to help the support staff during this time? I think it's, it's very much, uh, you know, the same, the same message. I do know that um, when I talk about adaptive leadership, I talk about the importance of communication. You know, we have never in healthcare had to lead through fear. And um, I know that maybe if we signed up to be a clinician, we may, maybe, maybe thought, you know, we would be exposed to something, but we didn't have the fear where whether you're in housekeeping or um, food and nutrition or a clinician coming home and going in your basement and having your food put on a step so that you wouldn't infect your family. None of us have have, have done that. That's that's a good point. I I think you've helped steer me in the right direction. That's the, I could tell by your eyes that you weren't uh, all that excited about my comment there. So, um, you know, you're very visible. No, no, but no, I I think you're right. Um, Peter Bazzilli's wife's an OBGYN in New York. And for months she was coming home and taking her clothes off in the garage and then showering like in the basement, just like you said, or wiping down your food before it comes in. So I, yeah, it's been a huge change for everybody. Absolutely. How we can help the people who are working through fear is, you know, and you won't be surprised by this, Quinn, because this is what you're a master of. It's communication. It's just you, you have to have, you know, you have to have a plan. If you're going to update your team every single day at 10 o'clock, you need to do that. People need to, to have communication. You're also one of the first people that have told me the importance of walking around and asking what are the rumors because so many people say, oh, I thought we shouldn't talk about rumors. You have to get out there. And if I was the director of EBS, I'd be walking around saying, what's the rumors? What are you hearing? What, what are you concerned about? I would do the same with, with everyone in, in uh, the organization. I did a little clip for you back in March when, yeah, we thought this was like a six-week deal. And I talked about acknowledging, um, acknowledging the situation and not sugarcoating it because this, you know, well, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, when people are fearful, you have to acknowledge it just kind of like 
grief. Uh, people don't want advice. They want to be heard and they want to be acknowledged and they want to be able to say, I'm scared without saying, don't be scared. Instead of saying, I understand. What do you need from me? Ask what people need from you, not what they need from the universe, but from, from you. And again, another thing I you know learned from you way back, probably before I even liked you, um, was the importance of recognition. And it's got to, you know, it's got to be specific. It can't just be you guys are great. It's got to be, you know, Joe, when you come in and we start our mornings off with a laugh, you always have the best jokes. Thanks so much. Th- things that really matter to people. But we have to stay close. We, we have to stay close to all these folks. Is that what you mean when you say adaptive leadership, acknowledge, ask and appreciate? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, exactly. Acknowledge that it's tough. Um, ask what people need from you and then and then show your appreciation. And also, you don't have to sugarcoat things. You can say, I don't know. But as a leader, you need to constantly reaffirm your belief in the capability of the team. So if someone says, well, what's this? And you say, I don't know, but I do know this. I know how capable we are as a team. And when we work together, we can accomplish anything. I'm not concerned about that because I know we're a strong team. So constantly reaffirm, reaffirming the um, capability um, of the team, I think, um, is beneficial. You know what else I like, Liz? Um, while people in healthcare can relate, because, of course, you know, you're from healthcare, I'm from healthcare. However, having someone that, you know, is involved now in baseball and cafes and bookstores, absolutely every single suggestion you gave fits every single business. There's not a business out there. This doesn't fit. For for our listeners, a a tool that I I think Liz brought up is what are the rumors? Another nice thing to do is say to your managers, what questions are you getting? And they all, you create a safety net then because they say, well, here's what I'm getting. Now you don't like say, well, you should have answered it this way. You say, oh, okay. And that's where you can start developing answers to what I call difficult questions that sometimes managers don't want to make a mistake. So they just don't know how to answer. And I think getting to those tough questions, the things that we know are being talked about everywhere, but the man, but in the, in the C-suite is, is really right. a good tactic. Right. Tell me, Liz, you, you've written books for those of you who might not have read your books Tell, tell, tell us a little bit, because your books just do unbelievably well. Tell people about some of the books you've written and why they might want to read them now. Um, you know, I've written, I, I, I always knew that my, um, when I approached you and asked if you would be interested in, in publishing my work, I always knew I was going to do a trilogy because what we, you know, I kind of started very much so, and I think you did too, Quint, maybe, you know, really just talking about service. And it became very clear quickly that you can't have service without the right culture, and you're never going to have the right culture without the right leaders. So I knew pretty much right away that the books were going to be um, split. You know, there there would be three of them. I knew the first one would be Eat That Cookie because that's the... Um, uh, line I kind of became famous for, which right now I'm not using because it's not the time to tell people to shut up and eat a cookie. Um, but we'll get back there. And then the leadership book and the service book. Um, so the cookie book, I think, is the most popular because it's the broadest. It covers a wide variety of, of subjects for both uh, team members, 
and managers and executives. And the service book, um, I've had so many people in healthcare come up to me and say, now I understand service because in healthcare, we want to, we want to improve quality thinking it's going to improve service and it doesn't. You improve service by improving perception and you improve quality by improving outcomes. And we get mad. You know, the stuff that we think is important, patients expect, and things that they think is important, we think are silly. So I kind of make that case of how we difference not wrong. So but we have to look at it, we have to look at it differently. Those are the three. Well, Liz, let me go through because you just hit me with something. I remember a, a lady told me one time that she was a nurse and she was sort of, you know, ha 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 in the service thing, wasn't all bought in to the whole bit. And her father had a, a heart attack and he, she flew to the, her parents' place, ran to the hospital, walked in and the, um, her, her dad was in coming out, of, was in surgery. She sat there with her mom and the cardiovascular surgeon came out and he knelt down and held his, her mother's hand to explain the surgery, told him the father was doing okay. Um, and left. And she said, my God, what a great surgeon. And then all of a sudden it hit her. She had no idea if he was a great surgeon. Right. All right. The, all, tell right. tell the story, which, which um, about the, the, the Coke and the ice. Cause I think for you being a clinician, I, I just think for yeah. me, I just love that story. Yeah. I, um, my mother had a cerebral aneurysm and, and was hospitalized. Um, oh, she was in a coma for, um, um, eight weeks on a ventilator for six. And it was just a really bad time for us. And, um, you know, I would sit by um, her side and, and um, one day, you know, I, w- I would talk to her for a couple of hours, but she was in a coma and, you know, I can talk, but even for me, that's a long time. So I went downstairs and I got myself a tuna sandwich and a Diet Coke and I brought it back up to her room and I got myself all comfortable and brought the over the bed table and just as I was cracking open that can of Diet Coke, um, a nurse or a tech, someone walked by and they caught me eyeball to eyeball. And I thought, oh, I'm thinking I'm busted because probably you're not supposed to have tuna in the ICU. I don't know. And not 30 seconds later, she walked in with a tall styrofoam cup filled with ice, not a coffee cup size, a big one. And she said, I thought you might like this for your Diet Coke. And in that moment, she became my hero. I mean, no offense to the neurosurgeon. I knew my mom was getting good quality care. She was in a coma. She had no complications, no MRSA, no infection. But in that moment, that cup of ice is what made the difference to me. Yeah. Well, for those of you, you're listening, you don't know, but I've got tears in my eyes. Liz has tears in her eyes. Um, that's, that's, that's the magic of um, what we've done. And I, I've known Liz, like say since January, 1993, um, I spent a wedding anniversary with Liz in 1993 or four. I remember Liz and I were having this meeting and we were all jazzed up about something. And Frank called um, your, your late husband, Frank, who, who again, passed away suddenly and tragically of a heart attack. Um, I was there then too. On the yes, right you were. And, um, but I remember Frank calling you and wondered where you were. Why don't you tell that little story as we wrap up? Yeah. So, you know, it was sometimes we did our best work after, you know, everything had quieted down and um, uh, 
Quint and I are both kind of creative people. So when you put the two of us in the room, we just chat, 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 and kind of lose track of time. And around seven o'clock, uh, Frank called and he said, hey, I said, hi. He goes, are you coming home for dinner? I said, well, I, I, I don't know. And, and he said, well, are we going to have dinner? And I said, I'm sure we'll get something. He goes, well, I would have thought today you would have come home. I'm like, he goes, I was like, I will. He goes, you do know it's our anniversary. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'll be I remember right home. That. No, I remember you <laughs> ran out very, very quickly after that. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Frank was yeah. a great man. I still remember him at Blue Wahoo Stadium with his um, Blue Wahoo jersey and throwing out the first pitch. And um, yeah, I just saw that jersey. I had that. I kept that jersey um, as one of the things that, that I that I kept for that. And uh, yeah, he was. He, he he was, and I will say. Um, you know that I've written a book on grief that is called Grief Sucks because there are so many things that we don't want to deal about with grief. We really just, people want you to be fine after a year. You know, they want you to be back. People who love you dearly look at you to make sure you're okay. And, um, you know, I, I you know this, Quinn, because you helped me with the book that, you know, when Frank died, it was like my leg was amputated. And if my leg was amputated, no one would ever say, be happy for the 40 years you had together. Like, wasn't it good you had your leg for 40 years? Yeah, so now I don't miss it. So anyway, um, it's my snarky self in a different form. Well, but I think actually your book on grief is really going to be apropos to right now because we are in a grieving period. You know, if you look at grief, you, I don't think things are going to come back exactly like they were. I, I think that's part of that whole denial, grief, um, adjustment. So I actually, having read your book, Grief, I actually think um, that's one of the topics that needs to be talked about too. Because, you know, I, I agree with you. I think this idea of teach people in healthcare how to be resilient. No, no. They're so resilient that they don't have to get help. They're so resilient, they don't deal with feelings. So as we, we close up, what would, what would your message be about grief? Because you've really studied it and you've looked into it with Frank's passing. And how's yeah. that going to help somebody in healthcare today? In healthcare, a couple ways. One, you know, I finished the, uh, or it, it, somewhere in my session, I talk about one of the chapters I have in the book is grief is a sneaky bastard. And it, it is because I can best be going along fine. And then all of a sudden something happens. Look in a drawer, hear a song, look at a jar of mustard, something. And it like hits you. I always say it's like a baseball bat to the gut. I think healthcare workers are going to be experiencing that for two or three years. And my advice to them is when that hits, deal with it. If you have to cry, cry. You won't be crying forever. You might cry for five minutes, but deal with it. The other thing is, is, is that other people don't know what's best for you. So, and, and that's kind of similar with grief. So people will say to me, oh, we're having a barbecue. You should come. It'll be good for you. Um, no, not, not always. Sometimes being around families and people who were happy exacerbated the fact that I was alone. So I tell people um, in healthcare to, you know, make sure that you do for yourself and learn how to say no. Say, you know, it sounds like a nice event, but I'm, I'm not going to be there. And then there are others, you know, there are other um kind of just be kind to yourself. And when things happen, they happen. The more you try to push it down or forget it or think it's not there. You know, I sailed through the first year after Frank died. I did a tremendous amount of things. I mean, I bought and sold real, I bought a condo, sold, you know, sold a condo. 
I thought I, I thought it was fine. And then about um, 13 months in, I was actually speaking and I thought to myself, I can't get on the stage. I mean, it just I just basically fell apart. And I think that's kind of how healthcare is going to be. We have been fighting and challenging and, and, and working so hard. And we think we're all right. It might be two years from now when we're going to struggle with it. And if we do, I hope people reach out and get the help that they need and not be embarrassed or feel guilty about it. Yeah, because, you know, that's when both you and I have sought other help at times when you've gone through things. And I think people see and they think you're so strong, you don't need it. For, for those of you um, with the Gratitude Symposium, which is bringing great, great teachers um, for one month for free to healthcare students, nursing students, um, healthcare administration students, anyone in healthcare. Actually, Liz, I think I think the first idea came up with you and I. I think you and I were talking almost a year ago, and and we talked about this idea. So it's once again probably your idea that I'll take credit for, like <laughs> many other ideas I've taken credit for from you. Um, and then I, I actually believe it. Too, so we're equal. Yeah, yeah, I actually believe it, and you know, so so I'm excited about. Um, always you being back out because I know you're anxious to get back out. I'm anxious for the um, excited about the gratitude symposium, you know, Um, because I think it's a way of um, saying thank you. And you and I both owe so much to, to healthcare. You know, one of the things that I think we can ever agree on is who should be thanking who more. So um, thank you, Liz, so much for being on the busy leader podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Quinn. Thank you for listening to the Busy Leaders Podcast, a catalyst for inspired action hosted by Quint Studer. Please subscribe, rate us, and write a review. For more information, visit thebusyleadershandbook.com.